The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and peacekeeper, and you are listening to Cinema Limbo. This evening's discussion hinges on Street Fighter, the 1994 action fantasy based on the video game series and starring Jean-Claude Van Damme and Raoul Julia. My guest is gaming journalist and comics writer Dan Whitehead, and you join us via digital conversation. Hello, Dan. Hello, Jeremy. Um... I'm very pleased to have uh, someone of your calibre on the programme this time. Um, really? <laughs> y- yes. It's it's, ni- it's nice to be talking to an expert for a change. Well, there's no pressure there then, is there? <laughs> I wasn't aware I even had a calibre, but there we go. You just need to know slightly more than me on one subject. I wouldn't worry. <laughs> Got you. The old, uh, the old GCSE teacher's approach, yeah. <laughs> so what can you tell me about the video game series Street Fighter? Ah, Street Fighter. Um, well, it started um, in the late 80s. Uh, the Japanese company Capcom uh, first created it. Um, the very first game, which was amazingly called, just called Street Fighter, um, actually the arcade machine had a sort of big soft button that you had to punch in order to make the characters fight. Um, that didn't last very long because the arcade machines <laughs> basically got battered and had to keep getting fixed. Um, and the game was not particularly great. This is why nobody remembers the first Street Fighter game. Uh, with Street Fighter 2, everything kind of fell into place and all of a sudden there were loads more characters. You were using crazy things like a joystick and buttons to control it. And, you know, you had all these, like, combo moves. You had to, you know, kind of left all the way down to the bottom and press these buttons to do a special move and all this kind of stuff, which kind of gave it a tactical edge. Um, and all of a sudden it was a huge hit. And it was when um, that was sort of 92, I believe, Street Fighter Two came out, um, which was also the time when things like the Sega Mega Drive and the Super Nintendo were kind of really hitting the home. And this was one of the, the big arcade games that finally would work on a home console. It, you know, in a way that kind of looked almost exactly like it was in the arcade. Um, so that was a big, a big draw. It was one of those games that people played in the arcade, and then they could come home and just play it obsessively at home as well. 
and then since then, Capcom has regularly sort of churned out sequels and spin-offs and spin-offs to the spin-offs, and it's 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 had a ridiculous number of games in this series, even though officially they're only up to Street Fighter Five. Um, <laughs> but this is this is the way Japanese games work. I mean, like Resident Evil's up to Resident Evil Seven, but there's been like something like twenty Resident Evil games, um, and Street Fighters like that. There's there's Street Fighter Two, there's Street Fighter Two Turbo, you know, and then they'll have. Um, I think I can't remember the one of them Street Fighter Three EX Turbo something something something. The name of the game was basically a paragraph. Um, so they kind of come up with all these like remixes and things like that, and that's how the the series has endured. It's it's constantly remixing and adapting and adding new characters and taking old ones away, and it's it's still played at a sort of professional level. Um, you know, it's a kind of esports is a thing that's happening now, and Street Fighter was one of the first games to really be played professionally by people who knew all the moves, all the combos. Um, and when you when you see people playing the game at that level, it is really amazing. It's almost like sort of martial arts chess or something. They're always reacting in a split second to whatever their opponent's doing and countering this move with that move and all this kind of stuff. Which is obviously worlds away from how most people play it, which is just basically bash the buttons until something cool happens and hope you knock the other person down. That's exactly how I used to play it. Um, I'm I'm not a I'm not a big gamer by any means. I mean, I had an Atari two six hundred when I was at, when I was at school, um, so I was very good at Space Invaders, um, but I didn't like having to pay for it. Ten p. <laughs> and um, later on, when I was at boarding school, someone brought in their must have been a, a Super Nintendo, and it had uh, Street Fighter two on it. So I did have a go on it, and it was in my case, just button mashing and and hoping that whatever it was would end up with the other person being kicked in the face in 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 the game, if not in real life. Now, um, video games have a very checkered history in terms of film adaptations. <laughs> you, you, you could say that. I mean, I'd say it's not so much checkered because that kind of implies alternates, good and bad. <laughs> um, I'd say it's mostly just bad. But yeah. I, I, like, I like to see the good in things. I mean, uh, I, I went to see Silent Hill knowing, uh, oh, it's about a haunted town. And uh, that was quite good. And I thought, well, the game is probably e- even more and uh, full of fog. Yes, very foggy game. Um, I've seen several Resident Evil movies, and they're not very good, are they? Well, I mean, the, the weird thing is Resident Evil is, is another Capcom game. Um, and like I say, there's been dozens of games, and the, the backstory to the Resident Evil games is absolutely incomprehensible at this point it's really convoluted and full of just nonsense and what's fascinating is that the films have almost nothing in common with the games now but they have also become ridiculously convoluted and impossible to understand so it's like it's almost in the dna of that series that wherever you start from within like five movies or five games no one's going to be able to understand what's happening that that seems somewhat self-defeating if you're having a a storyline that's so complex that it's it's that hard to follow, and you're trying to get the player involved in a very visceral environment. It's, so it's not like a it's not like a plot based game. It's a it's a horror game. This is it. Yeah, I mean, this is where you kind of you can fall into the rabbit hole of sort of quite deep um, sort of game narrative theory here, where there's basically this idea that there's the there's the story which is the plot, which is the story scenes, which go, you know, oh, the mansion is secret base by the Umbrella Corporation, and this man is, you know, his his father did this, and now he's got to do that. That's kind of window dressing. 
Um, and this is this kind of gets into why video games often don't work because they adapt the story from the games, and the story in games is right. usually terrible because it's it's wallpaper, it's background stuff. The real story of a video game is what happens to you while you're playing it. So people's memories of playing Resident Evil for the first time, they probably won't remember all the details of the crazy conspiracies towards the end and the secret labs and all the experiments and stuff. They remember how scared they were when they were creeping around a corner and a zombie jumped out at them. To them, that is the story, and it's a story that exists in that moment only for them while they are playing, but you can't turn that into a film. All you can turn into a film no. is the stuff with the conspiracy and the the crazy characters who don't make sense. And that's why video games, movies, have always suffered, because they're stuck adapting the least interesting part of the game, which is the bit you don't play. Well, there's the other element that I'm interested in is there's um, games like, I think it's called, the, it's not called The Story of Us, is it? The Last of Us, which I gather is, is much more plot-based, much more character-based. And I've... I've heard that there's rumours of turning it into a film, and I thought, well, wouldn't that just be like a non-interactive version of the game, which seemingly removes the USP of the game in the first place? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, The Last of Us is, is really good and very well respected for good reasons, but you're, you're right in the sense that it is basically an interactive... Um, and you, I think, I think if you, I'm sure if you go on YouTube, people have done this. They've stripped out all the sort of long sections of gameplay where you're creeping around and bashing mushroom people in the head with a pipe and just kind of condensed it down to the the action beats as they would be in a film and you know it, it probably works perfectly well as a film because the the cut scenes which is what we call the story scenes in a game they're really well animated they're really well acted they're really well written you know it's it's a really compelling piece of entertainment but like you say if you you, you can take all the gameplay out but at that point what's the point really yeah, you know, your your connection to these characters comes because you're you're in control of them for, you know, ten twelve hours. So with something like Street Fighter, where the essence of the game is having a fist fight with someone, um, how does do you, how well do you think that translates into a film described by its director as James Bond meets Star Wars? <laughs> He'd love that to be true, wouldn't he? Um, the weird thing about Street Fighter is, and this is true of a lot of sort of fighting games like Tekken and Mortal Kombat and all of those ones, um, they often have incredibly dense backstory for all the characters, none of which is in the game. So fans will know all this information about these characters from reading the video game manuals originally, I guess, these days from, you know looking it up on the internet, but each character has this incredibly detailed history about why they hate this particular character and why they're going to fight this person and why they're doing this. Um, but in the game, the characters really only sort of go, oh, you have defeated me at the end, and that's it. That is their interaction. So, yeah, the the story behind the Street Fighter movie is that Stephen D'Souza, who wrote 48 Hours, um, Commando, Die Hard, you know, loads of great 80s action classics, um, studio came to him and said, look, Capcom wants to make a game out of Street Fighter. He'd heard of it because his his son had been at college and basically spent the first year of college playing Street Fighter. Uh, and he was hired to write the movie, but he said, I also want to direct it and I don't want to make a martial arts film. Which is the obvious way to adapt these things because the games are basically structured as, basically based on Enter the Dragon, which is where you get into this weird kind of circular um, sort of parasitic relationship between martial arts films and martial arts 
games. Um, Enter the Dragon, you know, the, all these characters go to this island, which is run by a crazy man, um, and they each have their own fights, and then at the end, you know, the bad guy is fights the hero and he dies. Um, that was the template for pretty much every fighting game was there is a secret tournament run by a by a crazy madman, um, and all these characters are in the tournament for different reasons. Um, but he didn't want to make the Street Fighter movie like that. And bizarrely, Capcom didn't want him to either. They wanted to make a James Bond movie. Um, and the idea was that, you know, they travel around the world and they go to all these different locations. Because the big thing with Street Fighter is there's, even though the backgrounds behind you don't really make a difference, they kind of do in the later games, but it's really just... a you know, an animated backdrop. Uh, but the idea is that they're traveling all over the world having this tournament. Um, and that was the idea for the film as well. But in, as it turned out in the film, they basically just stay in one place for the whole time. Um, but yeah, you know, the idea was that this would be a, a sort of ensemble James Bond film rather than a martial arts film. And that comes across because even though they hired um, Jean-Claude Van Damme, there's very little martial arts in the film. It's really only in the big battle scene in the last half hour that there's any actual proper fighting yeah yeah um and it's 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 really weird there's no street fighting for a start <laughs> nobody fights in the street um it's 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 kind of one part sort of dumb early 90s action movie uh there's weird bits of comedy and stuff but the actual fighting which you would think would be front and center it's not just hardly there. It's it's virtually non-existent until, like you say, right at the very end, where you finally get some of these characters actually fighting each other in a way that you could go, oh, it's like the game. For the rest of the time, they're kind of running around with guns or making stupid jokes. Um, it's it's very weird. But the the reason for that is because they spent so much of the budget getting Jean-Claude Van Damme on board and then getting Raoul Julia on board to play the villain that they didn't have enough money left to hire anybody else really everyone else had to be basically be a newcomer they hired a guy called benny the jet to teach them martial arts um if you've seen gross point blank the uh, john cusack movie benny the jet is the guy john cusack fights in the hallway at the prom at the end he's the guy that he's the guy that elton john wrote the song about yeah uh probably yeah yeah and he's he's quite a famous kickboxer um and he oh, he'll, he's, he's he's famous for teaching hollywood actors martial arts he's he's john cusack's kickboxing teacher which is why he was in the film and he was hired to teach the cast of street fighter how to fight but because they'd spent so much money hiring these two stars to headline the movie they didn't have enough money to pay the actors to come on board early and learn martial arts um then raul julia turns up on set um he's basically dying of cancer at that point um, he had stomach cancer, you know, before he started filming. Yes. Um, he turns up on set and he, he looks awful. You know, he's he's almost a skeleton, basically. So they say, right, we're going to have to push his scenes to the end of shooting, give him time to, you know, put some weight on and start to look healthy. Uh, which then meant, of course, the rest of this kind of cast of, of people who'd never been in a movie before, never learned martial arts, have to start shooting their stuff straight away. So they're shooting fight scenes having had no training whatsoever. Um, Benny the Jet hadn't been told anything about the game, so he's basically just teaching everyone the same basic moves. And the idea of Street Fighter is, of course, you've got all these different characters and they all have weird different fighting styles. You know, one's a boxer, uh, you know, one does this kind of martial arts, one does that kind of martial arts. But then they're all basically just doing the same... The same kind of generic moves. You know, so a big sort of selling point of the game is just not there because of this weird budgetary restraint. Well... I I came to the movie aware of its reputation, uh, aware of the fact that it was bizarrely quite a big hit, and 
so I was able to watch it with fresh eyes, and I thought it was absolutely great. <laughs> for, for a specific reason, it really reminded me of Flash Gordon. It has that over-the-top, high-camp, over-stylized pantomime tone. That mixture of comedy and uh, uh, sort of over-the-top fantasy adventure that seems to appeal in the UK, but completely baffles Americans. That's true, yeah. I mean, you're right, it was a huge hit. It was It was one of, I think it's one of only two Van Damme movies to make more than $100 million. Uh, the other one was Time Cop. And which is a genuinely really good movie. Yeah, no, he that was this Street Fight was made at his peak, basically. You know, these were the these were the movies that really made loads of money. Um, you know, he was getting paid the most to do these ones. These were his big hits. These were the ones where people were like, you know, oh okay, maybe he is a movie star and not just the straight to video, you know, kickboxer guy. But yeah, I can see what you mean. Um Stephen D'Souza has since kind of said, Yes, it's meant to be camp, it's meant to be funny. I'm not convinced that was always the intention. Um I think it's one of those ones where, late, like um, Showgirls, where kind of later in life, oh, going, oh, yes, yes, no, we meant everyone to laugh at it. Of course we did. We weren't being serious. Um, but I, th- I think, you know, they really did think they were making a, a, a real action movie. I think the difference with Flash Gordon is Flash Gordon is knowingly camp and it's knowingly bringing these kind of like 1930s and 1950s kind of storytelling devices into the 1980s with a bit of a wink, but they take it, they play it straight and they kind of trust you to get how over the top it is. I think too much of Street Fighter is just kind of camp because it's it's weird and doesn't make much sense and looks cheap and feels a bit slapdash and thrown together. I, I don't think it was a deliberate work of camp. I think it's an accidental work of camp. Whether that makes a difference, I don't know. Well, camp is in the eye of the beholder much of the time. Well, the, uh, the movie starts with a crisis already underway in the... Um... Uh, nebulously Southeast Asian country of Shadaloo, somewhere on the border between Hong Kong and Australia. Um, and uh, we've got Colonel Guile, head of the Allied Nations forces, calling out evil General Bison on TV and then telling him to shove it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is funny how basically those two characters, the hero and the villain of the film, basically just troll each other through the same news programme throughout the whole thing. Um, <laughs> it's It's that kind of, you know, just... Yeah, that's what happens. The weird thing is, the story, if you actually break down what happens in the movie, nothing really happens in the movie. There's a lot of running around and a lot of sort of switching between the same sort of two or three locations, but so much of it, especially in the second act, is just basically made up of different groups of characters being captured and escaping and pretending to be working for someone else and then being found out and being captured and escaping. And it kind of goes round in this kind of weird, confusing sort of swirl of weird double crosses and triple crosses and captured and escaped, captured and escaped. And it's it's kind of baffling, really. I mean, there's there's at least three main sort of protagonists in the film. There's Jean-Claude Van Damme's Colonel Guile, who's headline build, but is not in it that much. Um, there's uh, Chun-Li, who is the news reporter that he's talking to. She's secretly a martial arts expert who also wants to get General Bison. And her cameraman and sound guy are also <laughs> Street Fighter characters in disguise who want to get him. And then you've got Ryu and Ken, who are kind of the default main characters in the game. 
um, and they're sort of like vaguely defined street hustlers who I think were supposed to think are sort of charming lethal weapon style buddy banter kind of guys but really just come across as quite bland and pointless in this movie they just kind of tag along and sort of get into scrapes and never really contribute much to it so you've got all these three you know these three strands going along then there's also another subplot with um bison he's trying to create a race of genetic super soldiers and he's <laughs> he's, he's, he's <laughs> why not I mean, I mean, like like a villain in an Ed Wood movie, really. Yeah, a race of atomic super beings. Uh, and to be, I mean, you have to say, Raul Julia absolutely owns this movie. He knows exactly the right tone to hit. He's he's absolutely wonderful all the way through. Yes, he he's amazing, and he he died not long after making it. I mean, this was literally like one of the last things he ever did in his life. Not just one of the last movies. It was like you know a few months after making it, he he gone. Um, but he's so good, you know. Even even in that physical state, he's he just dominates the screen, and he, he actually gets some of the movie's best lines. Is that one where his uh, Chun Li is uh, telling him about the day he killed her father and he destroyed her village and all this? And he, uh, I'm trying to remember what the exact line is. For you, the the day that Bison graced your village was the worst day of your life, but for me. It was Tuesday. That's it. And he, he just nails that line. It's such a brilliantly casual, you know, and you could almost imagine, you know, um, you know, Adams saying that in the Adams family. It's, it's, it's that kind of Gomez kind of casually, as I'm terribly evil, what are you going to do about it? Um, There's another one where he's, uh, he's talking to Dr. Dalsim about um, his uh, genetic uh, soldier plans. And he says, "Oh, why are you, why are you so downhearted? After I've crushed my enemies, we'll see about getting you published." Yes. <laughs> it's almost like he stepped in from another film, really. Um, whether that's because his his part of the script was just better, or whether because he's just better at elevating the material, I don't know. But that, that's the weird thing. His they've got this other plot with him and Dalsim, who again is a Street Fighter character in the games. He's like a yoga guy. And he's got stretchy arms and legs, hasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's kind of like Mr. Fantastic, because apparently yoga lets you do that. <laughs> I can confirm it does not. Yoga, not really a martial art, but, you know, we'll leave that to Capcom to explain. But, um, yeah, in the games, Dalsim is this kind of yogic fighter with stretchy arms. In the film, he's a scientist. And you can see towards the end of the film, they're kind of stretching to get all the different characters into the right... It's because it's one of those sort of prequel movies where the last shot of the movie with all the main characters going, ha! at the screen. That should have been the first shot of the movie, really. That's where you should start with these characters. What I read was that um, when D'Souza was pitching to the executives at Capcom, he explained that having seven main characters should be the limit. And he said, like, seven samurai, seven uh, magnificent, seven, seven dwarfs. Also, I would say the cast of Dad's Army. Yes, I'm sure that was on um, mind, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a it's a very big show in Japan, um, but um, they kept during the writing process saying, "Oh, can you add in this character? Can you add in this character?" Until he had like thirty of them. Yeah. You you look at the the sort of cast on IMDb, and there's a character called T Hawk, who's you know he's in the game. He's he's this bizarrely racist game when you think about it. There's so many characters just like he's from this country, so therefore he's like this. And T Hawk is the Native American character. Obviously, it stands for Thunderhawk or something. Um, and in the film, sure enough, there is a Native American guy called T-Hawk who does nothing, really. He's just there so they can say, yeah, he's in it. Um, 
and there's a, a DJ guy called DJ. He's a character from the game. He's just there to be a DJ, so people can go, oh, there's there's DJ. Um, so yeah, you can definitely see how that happened with Capcom going for everybody in, please, everybody. It treads this odd line between wanting to satisfy fans by putting in all these characters they recognise, but also telling a story that has nothing to do with the, the game, really, and doing it in a way that doesn't match the way the game is presented. That's the way I think. They've, they've got um, the fact that Chun-Li is this reporter and then her audio guy is uh, Honda, who's the sort of Japanese sumo guy, although he's Hawaiian in the movie. Um, and her cameraman is Balrog, who's a boxer. Um, and the, the interesting bit of Street Fighter lore here is that M. Bison is such a weird name for a character. In Japan, that is the name of the boxer. Oh, because it's a it's a play on it's a pun basically. He's he's Mike Tyson, but they've changed it to M. Bison. When the game came out in America, basically Capcom's American office went, "He might sue us or possibly kill us," so we're going to change that around. So they took the M. Bison name and gave it to the villain who in the Japanese one is called Vega. The Vega name was given to the guy with the mask and the swords, who is another character who's in the film, we've not mentioned yet, um, who's just literally there to go, hi, I have a mask and swords. Um, so they kind of shuffled the names around so that nobody would know that the name M. Bison was uh, basically just going, he's a big black boxer, just like Mike Tyson. So they decided to name the big black boxer after a monster from Lord of the Rings. Yeah, nothing racist about that whatsoever, yeah. Yeah, that's that's unfortunate, isn't it? Also, how how's he supposed to operate the camera with those big gloves on? <laughs> well, I say he doesn't actually reveal his boxing skills until the end when all of a sudden he is dressed like a boxer. <laughs> yeah, he suddenly has boxing gloves on. Yeah, that's what I mean. By the end of the film, you can see them going, we need to make them look like they did in the game because up until now, these two popular characters have basically been like cameraman and audio guy. So we need to kind of make it clear, no, they're fighters. And so all of a sudden, they're just dressed as they would be in the game. And you see that happening to a lot of the characters. It's it's like all of a sudden, in the last 10 minutes, they kind of rush to get everybody into position. So you can kind of go, oh, I see, and then the game starts. Everything sort of choreographed towards the last 20 minutes being, this is what the fans want to see. And then, and then the and then the big group shot at the, at the end with the logo over it, yeah. And like I say, that's kind of the bit that all the Street Fighter fans have been waiting for, and the fact they make them wait until the, literally the last second of the film to go, ah, it is Street Fighter after all. Okay, fair enough. But you, you see that a lot in um, superhero films now as well. Maybe not so much these days, but you used to, where they basically tell their own story and their own version, and then at the end they'd kind of go, and here's all the stuff the fans were waiting for. He's got he's got his full costume now and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, there is this weird thing where they're trying to do a a movie that will obviously attract the many, many fans of the game. But if you made a movie for the fans of the game, it would be absolute nonsense to everybody else. It would just it would be sort of a weird knockoff of Enter the Dragon, really. Basically, yeah, with kind of weird sort of cartoonish fighters, which, you know, maybe won't be too bad. I mean, I know a lot of people say that uh, Mortal Kombat is one of the better video game movies, not because it's a particularly good movie, but because it is almost exactly like the game in that you have all these weird characters and most of the film is just based around them having one-on-one fights in different combinations, which, to fans of the game, they go, that's what I wanted to see. Well, there's uh, there's all kinds of uh, stuff going on behind the scenes in Shadowloo because uh, Ken and Ryu have been trying to sell guns to um, Sagat, 
and another character from the game. But the guns fire ping pong balls. And I, I didn't know whether or not they were supposed to be fake guns or real toys that they're selling because they're expecting to buy toys. I think I think the idea is that they kind of needed Ken and Ryu to be these kind of like underworld figures, like street level hustler kind of guys, but they also didn't want to have them be the kind of guys who would literally sell arms to a mania. So they have this kind of weird thing where it's like, I'm using the word weird a lot, I'm, I'm aware of that, it is a very weird film. Um, so I think they kind of had them We'll we'll trick them. We'll we'll sell them these guns, and then we'll run off with the money before they realise we've sold them ping pong guns. But of course, they get found out, and that I believe is the first time they're captured out of about twenty-seven times in the film. <laughs> and then they, they get put in. They put in a in a cage fight, and you're thinking, okay, here we go. There's going to be a fight, and then just as the fight's about to start, a car crashes through the wall or a tank or something, and you don't get a fight. Sorry, <laughs> it's it's a street fighting movie. Well, I'm not fighting yet. I like that the warm-up to the fight was uh, Vega coming in as Ravel's Bolero plays on the soundtrack because uh, he really reminds everyone of Torval and Dean. I think I think they've kind of gone. He's he's Spanish, maybe. So let's is that Spanish? That's Italian, isn't it? It's all the same. Let's just have him do that. Um... But I I also enjoyed uh, Guile smashes through the wall in a tank, opens up the hatch and come out to come out and says. Right, you're all under arrest, and all three hundred of them drop their guns and put their hands up. <laughs> yeah, I mean that is yeah, that's the there's something weirdly childlike about the film. It's I I feel that that scene was sort of guest written by the goodies, <laughs> or more likely they just worked out we cannot afford to have an action scene here, so we're just gonna have to have everyone give up immediately. There's also a cameo at this point by Adrian Cronauer. All of a sudden, really, on on the uh, AN forces radio, saying "Good morning, Shadowloo." Ah, of course. And uh, he actually he passed away recently, and this is, and that's that's really him. <laughs> wow, well that that's a, that's that's good. That's good when trivia. Ro- when Robin Williams is too expensive, why not just hire the guy he real he played in real life? You see, if only they found a way to get the real Patch Adams in there as well, they would have. Really been onto something, I think. And what would his fighting skill have been? Um, just laughter. The healing power of laughter. <laughs> laughter is the best offence. <laughs> so the, this this complicated scheme gets cooked up where Ken and Roy are going to infiltrate Sagat's gang by all being arrested together. Yeah, they, they fake and... they fake Jean Claude Van Damme's death. And there's a prison break, and. And there are multiple tracking devices. It, it kind of goes around in a lot of circles. But they they fake a kind of getaway and they make it look like Ken and Ryu have killed um, Jean-Claude Van Damme. I keep calling him Jean-Claude Van Damme instead of his character name because, you know, he is. He just disappears into these characters, doesn't he? I'm going to stop saying weird, but the strange thing is that they were already infiltrating the gang. So why not just let them do that? Why why come up with this kind of this convoluted fake death thing which doesn't really factor into anything after they've been taken in. There's no kind of reveal or anything. Um Maybe it was to make Sagat uh, certain that uh, they were on his side. I guess, yeah, but it's you can ki- you can see the, the screenplay kind of straining to get from A to B. Where it's like, you know, well we need we need them to get there. 
So they could do this, but why would they do that? Well, we'll just get a character to say that they need to do that. Um, and then that'll be fine. And we never need to reference it again. It's just as long as we get them into this building for the next bit to happen, everything else can just be forgotten immediately. It's it's a pity that the connecting tissue is so obvious. It should be sort of nice smooth transitions all the way through, rather than you know we need to get from card A to card B on the the writer's pinboard, and the string is has been left in all the way through to the finished movie. And it kind of loops around about twenty seven you know um, drawing pins on the way. Um, it kind of feels like they could, they could have got to Bison's hideout for the big action thing in Act 2, and just had much more action and, and the stuff people expected, but there's this second act which is so full of all the different um, protagonists, you know, the three different prongs, all having... It's, it's almost... This is going to sound strange, but it's almost Shakespearean in the way it just constantly leans on mistaken identity, and this, <laughs> this person doesn't think I am who I am, but I am this person, but that person thinks I'm someone else, so I have to pretend to be that person over here. And it's this... It's almost like a comedy of errors, you know. It's it's a it's a real pantomime. Like you said before, it's like a pantomime where it's almost like you know he's behind you, um, but it, it it's all utterly unnecessary for the actual story. It just kind of goes around in circles for a good half hour. At some point, isn't there is a, a male character dressed as a woman somewhere? Isn't there? I get the I get the feeling that there is. That is definitely a trope of action movies in that kind of time band where you would you would have you know one of the butch heroes dress up as a woman for some reason to either get in somewhere or escape from somewhere um so yeah call sign twanky yeah the tango and cash kurt russell dresses up as a woman for instance (laughs) so it's it's that kind of you know oh that's funny man in a dress but i'm trying to think if it does happen in street fighter it feels like it does but that might just be By the end of that film, you're so punch drunk, you're just assuming that all kinds of things happened. Meanwhile, Bison is looking at the model that's been built of his new city. Yes, but that that does lead to one of the the best shots in the film, where um, Honda and uh, oh, blank Zangief, Zangief, the the big uh, sort of Russian bearded guy, uh, another character. <laughs> Who is in there? We've not mentioned yet, um, and they have a their fight kind of spills over onto the model, and it kind of goes it goes sort of Toho monster movie for a while. And I think they actually use the Godzilla sound effects and music for a moment. They do. And that's that's a wonderful little moment there. That 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 kind of you feel like okay, now you've got it. That's the tone. Stay there in that. that oh no, you've lost it again. Well, that's the thing. I I feel it's got that tone all the way through. That kind of knowing. Yeah, don't take this too seriously. It's, this is a fun adventure. Maybe, maybe. I, th- I think th- the thing is that so many of the action scenes at the end just take place in corridors and rooms, and yeah. there's the again, it's it's clearly down to the the budget being spent on keeping Jean Claude Van Damme off drugs. Um, oh, well, appa- apparently that was not money well spent. Yeah, I mean, this. I mean, this is you know on the record. Stephen D'Souza has said that. Um, Van Damme was in the deepest throes of his cocaine addiction at this point um, and was a nightmare to get on set. Um, he would frequently just fly off to Hong Kong and not come back for four days or he would just stay in his hotel suite and saying he needed to pump up his muscles. So they go, right, we're shooting something else then. Um, 
But yeah, it just it just doesn't feel like they use location very well in this film. There's the sort of Allied Nations HQ town square. Um, there's Bison's hideout, and there's a kind of generic, kind of underworldy, kind of grungy crime bit. But that's basically it as far as locations go. There's there's no for for, for a film that was supposed to be a sort of James Bond adventure. There's very little movement. It's basically just these handful of locations which could be down the road from each other for all we know. Um, and characters just kind of switch in between them in a kind of vague way. Um, there's no real kind of propulsion to the story. You know, we've got... It's not like... In, the whole thing with Star Wars is got to get to the Death Star and that in itself is a big, you know, a big sort of quest to get to the Death Star. In this one, they just kind of rock up to Bison's HQ in a, in a boat, in a, in a stealth boat that goes invisible for a short time for no reason. I, I I would like to clarify a stealth boat that has Guile's name printed on the side, <laughs> yes. so that no one else drives off in it by mistake. And uh, Kylie Minogue, who's playing Cammy, another character that has not come up before. Um, yeah, she activates stealth, and it's like a big moment. She activates stealth, um, and the the boat doesn't actually go invisible. But in Bison's HQ, when they're looking at it on the monitors, the boat is invisible, and all you can see is the water parting where the boat is. I have no idea how that works. Um, it's like someone in the special effects department got the wrong end of the stick as to what kind of stealth they were going for. Um, you know, either it goes invisible in real life or it's invisible to radar, but they've kind of gone for this weird kind of, well, you can see it if you're actually there, but if you're looking at it on TV, then it's not. But you can also still see it because you can see the hole in the river. Yeah, there's, there's clearly something moving along there. Uh, but there's, a, you know, and all Bison's men are kind of watching this kind of invisible wake moving through the water and going, what's going on? Should we do anything? Maybe not. Let's just see what happens. It might be a big fish. Um, but yeah, they, they, they activate this stealth and Kylie Minogue, bless her, makes a big deal out of the fact she's activating stealth. And then about maybe 90 seconds later, they break their stealth and she goes oh the stealth's ruined and that, that's it that was the entire oh, no. that was the entire purpose of having stealth was to not be detected for 90 seconds and it doesn't seem to make any difference it's 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 another example of just the kind of stuff that was thrown in there and nobody thought what does this actually connect to what what does this do but it's just there as stuff i think it, a, a lot of these things might be scenes that were written just so that they would have something to shoot on days when people, you know, when Raul Julia was too ill, uh, Van Damme was too off his face or missing, or, or while people, other people were desperately trying to learn fight sequences to shoot the following day. I mean, they've got so many characters, it's entirely possible they were just making stuff up so that Kalimno would have something to say. I mean, you know, but I mean, the, another thing is that by um, they shot it in Bangkok, what was then called Bangkok um, and they'd been shooting in Bangkok for 10 days and they were six days behind schedule within the first 10 days that's how bad it was <laughs> um, and Stephen D'Souza has said that he basically used the what he calls the John Ford method which is when you're behind schedule you just open the script at random tear a page out and go right we're back on schedule now so and when you watch the film you can you, you believe that's what happened because there's just huge chunks where you go why what why is why is that happening? What was that the point of that whole sequence? It just seems to have ended with no consequence. So you can kind of imagine they were just pulling chunks out of the script and going, yeah, whatever, don't need that anymore. The rest of that Bisonopolis scene, I, th I think it's really worth noting that Bison's first scene is, I, 
I think you should make the food court larger. All the all the all the big franchises will want in on that. With, with his bison dollars. With his bison dollars, which he's going to set at five pounds sterling, and he will force this through by kidnapping the queen. That's his next big plot, and I think he's such a <laughs> he's he's like a comic book villain who's just escaped from the page into the real world. There, but, there is there is an alternate dimension where the rest of the Street Fighter movie is as brilliantly unhinged as Raul Julia is as M. Bison. And in that universe, the Street Fighter movie is an absolute classic. Um, I kind so, of feel like every time you kind of cut from Raul Julia to Ken and Ryu's kind of sub-sitcom bickering, it's just like the air just goes out of the movie completely. Um, you know, the Van Damme stuff has a certain sort of camp element to it, I guess, uh, just because it's Van Damme and he's just naturally camp. But um, or seeing the or the scenes of him and Simon Callow together at last. Yeah, that was a that was a, a weird little bit, wasn't it? Um, and <laughs> they even go for the classic sitcom as he speeds off; they all get soaked with water. <laughs> it just really needs the kind of <laughs> kind of stinger at the end of it because he's a pencil pusher and Jean-Claude Van Damme's told him where to go. He doesn't even get a name. He's he's built something like sixth, relatively high up, but he's just called AN official. Yes. Unofficial. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think. I mean, Simon Callow was probably not... I mean, it was this... It was 94, so... It's the same year as Four Weddings and a Funeral. Yeah, but I mean, I guess in Hollywood terms... So... so he was in the, he was in two of the biggest films of the year. I mean, what's what's next? You know, Jerry Bruckheimer Beckers. And what a double bill that would make. He could have had um, Sean Connery's role in The Rock. <laughs> God, so I, I still think The Rock is the best unofficial last James Bond film. If you if you watch The Rock and pretend that Sean Connery is basically playing old bitter James Bond who was locked up for for knowing too much, it improves that film by about a thousand percent. There's quite, there's quite a few like that. Where you've got um, the Taylor of Panama as well with Pierce Brosnan as an ex-spy who just starts making stuff up when he's sending his reports back and casually sleeping with other people's wives. I mean, I guess that's a, that's just a, a trait of having played Bond is that people keep giving you Bond-esque roles just to kind of wallow in that. North Sea hijack as well. Yeah, I mean. Um... Roger Moore did a, a load with him as well. He did that one where it was a is it an oil tanker or there's one where it's like a cruise ship or a, a a big ship gets taken over by terrorists and he's a an incredibly posh sort of navy guy who goes in to take them all out and it's he's basically playing James Bond but uh, with a moustache this time. And um, I, I think that I think that might be North Sea Hijack. It sounds a lot like that. That might be it actually. Yeah, he's um, his character is extraordinarily misogynistic he he he, I mean, he 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 speaks at some length several times about how much he hates and mistrusts women but but he really loves cats and he arranges that if he dies his pension will be spent on keeping his 40 or so cats in the uh, condition to which they have become accustomed and it's it's a weird film <laughs> They should have. They should have put that in the Bond films. That would have been lovely. None of which has anything to do with Street Fighter, though. I guess. 
Well, um, sure, Roger Moore did star in a Jean-Claude Van Damme film called The Quest, which appears to be very much the kind of fighting tournament story, but with Roger Moore as M. Bison. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, Van Damme made quite a few films that you could probably pretend were Street Fighter movies. I mean, certainly Kickboxer is is in that oh, vein. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a strange one. While they're at the uh, the evil jumble sale with all the arms dealers, <laughs> uh, Chun Li is there to uh, try and get closer while she's pretending to be a magician's assistant, and. <laughs> That she she broadcasts onto a TV in the next tent that there's a truck full of dynamite heading straight for them. And um, I've been listening to Down the Line recently, so I assume that the truck was being driven by Simon Day, who regards this as the solution to every problem, is to drive a truck full of dynamite at it. While Zangief, watching on the TV, says, Oh, quick, change the channel! <laughs> that is one of the sort of, the sort of slow-moving truck of dynamite heading towards them and nobody really does anything they just wait for it to hit them yeah that it, there does need to be some tightening up in some of these actions I'm still baffled as to why she tells them that's happening it seems to defeat the purpose of such an attack but i don't know i guess they couldn't get away with killing half the cast in the opening seconds of the film <laughs> i mean what what i will say for for street fighter is, is it's it's not even the worst street fighter movie no, I've I've heard Street Fighter: The Legend of Chun Li. Yeah, with um, Kristen Kruik from uh, Smallville as Chun Li, and basically very few of the other characters. I think they kind of went quite hard in the opposite direction of just like right, we're just going to have two or three of them. It's got Michael Clark Duncan as Balrog, um, a couple of other characters from the game, but it's mostly just a very anemic action movie in which the lead character happens to share a name with a Street Fighter character. Um, so. Yeah, for for all its its flaws and quirks, I still think the uh, this this Street Fighter movie is at least fun, even if it's in a kind of watch through your fingers, what the hell were they thinking kind of way. I enjoyed that in uh, Bison's headquarters. We see a lot of the behind the scenes stuff with his troopers. Um, we get to you know look in their changing room, listen to the uh, announcements. We even get to see them in the cafeteria. <laughs> And I just thought it's it's like like the corollary of the uh, the scene in Austin Powers where we see the home life of the guard who gets run over. Yeah, it's it's there's a definite bit of um, Austin Powers in that. You're kind of you know what's life like in an evil base. Um, but then um, also of course there's the the character of Blanca, which is a yet another character. Oh yeah, he's. he's uh... He's being infused with neat orange juice to make him crazy. Yeah, and, and being forced to watch videos, which makes him crazy as well. And the, the, he's yeah. ba- he's basically in a in a bottle for the entire film, and he's he's, he's the best friend of Ken, I think. Uh, or is he, Guile, he's he's Guile's it? best friend. That's it. Yeah, that's that's Guile's motivation. Of course, it is. Um, and yeah, he's 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 basically in this bottle, being turned into a into a sort of umper lumper on steroids um, for the whole movie and then he finally breaks out and he kind of goes a little bit crazy and that's it That's he, he's kind of built up as this kind of like you know, oh, he's going to be like the Hulk when he comes out he's going to be this kind of you know oh, wrecking machine who's going to really change the battle and then he just kind of comes out and beats up the guard who was guarding him 
that's it really. He kind of turns up again after all the actions happened and Guile Gu- Guile finds him and he's gonna shoot him. Um out of mercy. And the film takes a slightly weird, serious turn for a second. <laughs> Van Damme obviously wanted to show his acting chops at that point. You know, give me a give me a scene where I can I can emote. Uh but then he says, you know, we can we can I will fix you, we will get you know, we'll get you cured and Blanca goes, nah. And he just wanders off. <laughs> he just wanders off, and then and then later on he dies off screen. That's that's basically his character arc, yeah. Um, but again, you can kind of see them setting things up for a possible sequel, I guess, they were thinking, because Ken and Ryu, by the end of the film, have kind of... Um, Ryu's kind of discovered his, his purpose in life to fight for good and justice, and Ken is still a bit of a, you know, a bit of a rascal and wanting to profit from it all. Um, so they kind of end on bad terms, which... In the games, they're kind of rivals. Uh, so you can kind of see them creaking all these characters into positions, kind of go, okay, they have to be rivals, so now they're rivals, I guess. And uh, Blanca has to be this kind of crazy loner guy who's out in the wilderness, so he's just going to wander off, I'm afraid, guys. And we can't afford to shoot the stuntman doing any actual stunts in that makeup, so he's, he's just going to run off. <laughs> in the game... Blanca has some kind of electricity power. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. He can kind of he kind of squats down a bit like a frog, and electricity comes off him, like an electric frog. One of those. Yeah. One detail I liked is that the the guard who's watching over Dalsim as he changes the tapes over from the the evil tape full of Hitler and and car crashes and what have you into a good tape full of people's wedding videos and dolphins <laughs> but uh, the, the the guard is not paying attention because he's reading um, a magazine and i checked to see what the title of the magazine was it's esperanto for hustler <laughs> that's real commitment to the joke <laughs> at least now we know what language they speak in shadowloo well i mean m bison you know he's esperanto through and through with his collection of power hats, <laughs> I like. I enjoy that. I like in the seduction scene where he's trying to charm Chun Li. He changes out of his normal uniform into a smoking jacket and a smoking jacket coloured hat. Yes, he's got. A, he's got one for every occasion. Yeah, and then she does the world's worst flying kick, and there's what kind of passes for a fight, but it's really just a woman beating up a very ill man. It's just, it's just depressing, really. Well, there's all the paintings he has on the wall as well of sort of famous images where he's been replaced in all of them. So there's the one of, I think it's Wellington on horseback, and that's him. There's one of John Wayne Gacy's clown paintings, and that's him as well. Yeah, you can tell that that character more than any of the others really was the one where they kind of thought, let's make some effort with this guy. Um, He's, he's the one who you feel would exist outside of the film. With I think with these kinds of movies, they can't they tend to live and die by how engaging the villain is. Because you think about Star Wars, you've got Darth Vader. Think about great Bond villains, and you compare with, for example, a lot of the Marvel movies, um, where you've got you know, Tim Roth or Matt Mickelson or whoever was the villain in Captain America Civil War, because I can't even remember anymore, they tend to be quite sort of vague and nebulous and not terribly interesting because they risk overshadowing 
the heroes. But here, the hero is it's just Jean-Claude Van Damme in a haircut, and the villain is this fantastic larger-than-life character. And it's much more entertaining and much more exciting, I think. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the sort of switch to the sort of the Marvel way of doing it, where you're kind of making the film actually about the heroes whose name is in the title, that's quite a recent thing. The the older sort of action movies, superhero movies, comic, they they would tend to do that. They would cast the the big scenery-chewing, you know, actor character as the villain, you know. Um, but, you know, Batman is the perfect example, you know. Um, Michael Keaton was completely overshadowed by Jack Nicholson's Joker, which just ran away with the movie and with a lot of the money from the movie as well, because Jack Nicholson had this incredible deal with them where basically he got paid a percentage of everything from the movie, not just for being in the movie. If they sold Batman tablecloths, he got a cut of that as well. And he, <laughs> he even if his, even if his face wasn't on it, he, he basically said, you've got to give me a chunk of everything you make. Um, so you know, obviously, they got their money's worth by making sure he was he was basically the star of the film. So I think that is um, that was definitely a trait in those days was you, you you go big on the villain because that's the that's the big chewy role that people are going to enjoy. With uh, Batman and Robin as well, because you've got Arnold Schwarzenegger giving it everything as Doctor Freeze or Mister Freeze, whichever. Um, you know, the, you know the guy. You you know you put ice in him and then turn the handle in his stomach and then you eat what comes out. Um, Mister Frosty, that's the one. <laughs> and um, stop me and buy one. And um, George Clooney really sleepwalking through it as Batman, and re- like he's basically holding up a sign saying, "I don't give a shit." And then saying so when being interviewed about it. Yeah, I mean that that was that was the classic thing with the Batman films was they they would cast the the villains first, the villain, and that goes back to the old Batman TV show where, you know, the the big selling point of every episode of the Batman TV show was who's going to be the guest star, who's who's going to be you know being a, a guest villain on Batman in the nineteen sixties was like this absolutely huge honor. You know, it was like being a guest on um, Morecambe and Wise in the UK. It was the gig that everybody wanted. Everybody wanted to be a Batman villain. And that mentality kind of followed through to the Batman movies. And, you know, I guess to the, you know, the Superman movies, the original ones, you know, you've got Gene Hackman as the villain, Christopher Reeve, unknown as Superman, um, mm. Terrence Stamp as the villain in the other one. Um, Robert Vaughn. Yeah. Um, so there, there was this kind of thing that the, the hero is just, you know, the hero guy is going to do hero stuff. The villain is where you 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 cast the the big scenery chewing guy and have real fun, and that's definitely true of Raul Julia in Street Fighter. I'd say actually one film that I would may say maybe skips it is Batman Returns, because that's much more lower key and much more in a minor key, because it's that's quite a, a, a deliberately dark weird film. I won't go into too much detail because we've covered. Batman Returns on a previous cinema limbo because it's my favourite Batman film because it's so strange. Yes, I mean that was that was the one that basically got Tim Burton off the series because they'd come up with all these deals to sell Happy Meal toys and things like this, and then he comes out with a perverted penguin and a S and M Catwoman, and they're going, "We cannot sell this to children." <laughs> That's the point of this film is to sell things to children. What are you doing? But you know that, that was back in the days when directors were given huge amounts of money and just left it, not left to get on with it, but. There was obviously a sense of, well, it's it's his movie. We better let him do that, I guess. Um, you know, compared to now, where you you know you fart in the wrong direction on Star Wars and you get fired, and somebody else comes in and finishes it for you. 
it's it's sad i think these days how a lot of quite idiosyncratic creative voices do these big budget films and their their tone gets very ironed out um like rogue one i thought could have been a lot more risky if if i mean it, even even though it kills off all the characters at the end i felt like it could have been more of a an intense story but it kind of just got smoothed and flattened away i miss the old days of the 80s where david cronenberg was offered beverly hills cop and top gun <laughs> yes and david lynch was going to do return of the jedi i don't think he was going to do it but he was asked to do it he was asked to do it I, there's a, a he did an interview i don't know if you've seen it where he he talks about how he met george lucas because he wants to meet lucas anyway and said well he took me down to this workshop and he showed me this thing that was called a wookie and I started to get this pain in the back of my head. <laughs> Basically, apparently just George Lucas induces migraines in people. To be fair, it was probably accompanied by a like, 20-minute lecture about the, the culture of Kashyyyk, the Wookiee home planet or something, so that probably played and, into it. And Lynch's solution was to make Dune instead, which uh, will be addressed in a future episode. <laughs> so towards the end of the movie, it's... Um, it, just, it it largely, as I think I said, it turns into just a big free for all. It's it's almost like a like a dance movie at that point. I mean, lots of people say martial arts movies are like sort of musicals and stuff, but it is almost like everyone pairs off into their own little um, their little groups and they all do their own little thing, you know. So you've got the the big guys, Honda and Zangief, they have a big fight, and then you have the ladies have a fight, and obviously Van Damme and Raul Julia are going to have the the big fight on Raul Julia's floating pod thing um so yeah it's it's that's that's the point where you kind of go okay that that starting to feel like the street fighter games now i don't think i don't think it was necessarily a mistake to not do a martial arts tournament movie because it would have been obvious and probably not very interesting but they also kind of had to eventually fall into that kind of formula just because if you've got all these different characters What's the point of having them all if they're not going to have these like splitting off and having their own little fights in different corners of the the same building? It might have served the movie better, perhaps, to have that kind of thread all the way through, rather than saving everything up for the end. You could start it with, you know, a street fight, and have it as an ongoing thread, so that you can balance doing something different doing something a bit more unusual and creative with the material and giving the fans the stuff that they want to see as well yeah i mean maybe you know maybe the first act is the martial arts tournament and people think you know oh right yeah we know how this goes and then you know the um what would have been the third act of a traditional tournament movie you make the first act and then from the end of the tournament m bison escapes and sets off around the world or whatever and the all the different characters who have now come together through these fights all of a sudden have to set off around the world on their own things and that might give it a bit but then i mean they clearly only had money to shoot in in one building in bangkok for however long they had so anything anything too ambitious with regards to having people in different locations and doing anything other than sort of standing around in corridors was probably not going to happen well, the one other element is that um, Bison has been keeping some AN workers hostage for a while. Um, 
with a ransom of twenty billion dollars. And when the deadline passes, um, they he looks at the uh, the Swiss bank account, and not only does it say zero, it, I think it makes the I think it makes the family fortunes noise as well. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that's one of his other accounts. I hope that's not his, his main current account because. How am I supposed to pay my gas bill? Yeah, I don't know what the rent is on Bisonopolis, but you know he's he's not going to go into an overdraft for it. Um, but yeah, and he and he keeps his hostages in almost like a giant ashtray. It <laughs> <laughs> kind of slides open and slides shut, um, which is just in the middle of the floor for some reason. Um, well, he um he decides that he's going to have them all killed by his uh, homemade monster man. So he, the lift comes up. With he, th- he thinks it's going to be blanker inside. The door opens, and then suddenly, Guile leaps out already in perfect flying kick pose, having apparently taken a running jump from nothing. Van Damme can do that though. He's it's it's all that continental magic. Yeah, it does. Does Van Damme do the splits in this movie? I don't think he does. Which no, I don't think he does. Would make it an outlier in his in his oeuvre. I think. Well, this well, this is supposed to be a family film. Yeah, well, I mean, funnily enough, the the original cut of the film got an R rating. God knows how, but it was rated R, and they were contractually obliged to have a PG thirteen. So they cut loads of the fight scenes out, and you know, as many sort of actual impacts in the fights and stuff, and they cut it all out and they resubmitted it, uh, and it came back with a G rating, which is basically like a U. You know, it's and um, and and then they panicked even more because it was like no teenager is going to go and see a you know a movie with that rating because it basically says this is for little kids. Um, and so they just quickly shot a scene of uh, Jean Claude Van Damme saying shit, and edited that into the film, at which bumped it up to a PG thirteen again. That's that's how it became a PG thirteen. It's just baffling how these things work. I mean. The the MPAA is a, a very confusing, very closed organisation, and you think at some point they would have said, "Okay, stop there. That's fine. That's PG thirteen." I mean, I, I'd, I'd love to know what version of that film got an R rating because I, I, I'm willing to bet there is no such thing as a director's cut lying around. But I, I would be fascinated to know what level of violence in that film was considered too much. Um, I mean, the, the the R rating used to be a lot more strict, I guess, you know, and uh, PG movies used to get away with a lot more, so it used to be a lot more fluid, you know, whereas these days everything's PG-13 and horror films are R, and that's about it, really. Um, but back then, you know, you would have swearing in PG movies that you now kind of look at and go, wow, they're swearing a lot in this film, you know? I watched, um, I think it was The Goonies with the kids, and it's like, oh my god, this is full of swearing and knob jokes and drug references and just all kinds of stuff that back then was like, yeah, that's a family film. What are you talking about? And that now it's like a, it's like an HBO series. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's so weird. And I guess Street Fighter kind of fell into that kind of weird valley where, because um, I mean, the PG-13 had only come in five years before because it was the first Batman and... Is that is that right? Because I I thought it was Indiana Jones and the Last uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Temple of Doom and Gremlins. That was eighty four, so that would have been ten years. That might have been the PG thirteen. I think Batman Batman in the UK was the one that 
resulted in the twelve. Batman was the first twelve, I think. It was the twelve rating because they they kind of went. This is this is not a PG, but at the same time, it's not a fifteen. So we'll split the difference, I guess. Um, but yeah, that, so that kind of sort of mid eighties to early nineties, there was a lot of kind of shuffling around with ratings as people went, what's too much these days? Um, how far is too far? Another example, I think, is um, License to Kill, the Bond film, which which was originally submitted to the MPAA, and they said, no, you're going to have to cut this to get an R rating, because uh, the scene, the scenes of people being minced up or uh, blown up in a, a, a pressure chamber were felt were felt to be somewhat beyond the pale. Yeah, I mean for that that was a that was the the eon the Bond producers basically looking at people like Stallone and Schwarzenegger and that kind of action movie that was happening at the time and going, Bond is too old fashioned, we need to update him, which is, you know, something they've done lots of times since, but probably more successful with Daniel Craig. But at the time they were like, we need to make Bond into an action movie so he's he's not gonna be a spy, he's just out for revenge against a Mexican. And he's going to murder people, <laughs> and yeah, it's it's the only fifteen. But um... the funny thing is, is that it's arguably more of a Mission Impossible film than a Bond film because it follows the the kind of concept from the original Mission Impossible series of infiltrating the the bad guys' organization, bringing it down from the inside, but without them finding out who you are. That's true, yeah. Uh, Which also happens in Street Fighter, of course, in a kind of much less successful way <laughs> with the ping-pong guns. I, I find this about as plausible as most of the Mission Impossible films. Mm, yeah, I th- I'd like uh, to see Tom Cruise wielding a ping-pong gun in the next one, I think. that would be. I want the next one to start with like a big action sequence, like a car chase, and it ends with someone smashing his legs. <laughs> and then, so he becomes like the... Um, like the the guy at the other end of the uh, headset for the rest of the movie. Yeah. So that they can finally acknowledge that he's actually getting on a bit and he can still be in the movies but he sh- he shouldn't be doing all the running and jumping anymore because he might hurt himself. Here's a, here's a fun fact for you. Um Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible Fallout where he jumps from space and hurls himself out of a helicopter is I think it's 5 years older than Wilford Brimley was when he made Cocoon. <laughs> Yeah, so there you go. That's that's how the concept of age has just completely fallen to pieces in the last sort of thirty years or so. That's bizarre. There's another one I heard is that Paul Rudd is older than Steve Bannon. Wow. And yet Steve Bannon looks like he's been dead for thirty years. <laughs> yes, he looks like he's been in in Blanca's uh, genetic bottle for uh, most of his life. But they've but they've been infusing him with like mouldy vinegar, and uh, and chip fat. Yes, like a bin bag, <laughs> like a bin bag Showing full him. of yogurt that's been kicked down the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> the video they've shown him is um, repeats of Bottle Boys. <laughs> if only they'd shown him the dolphin video, the world's politics might be different. Well, during the the big fight at the end, um, Ryu appears to be doing one of his. Hadouken moves, but there sh- there should be. I mean, having having played the game a bit, I know that there should be some kind of bolt of energy or something coming out of his hands, 
and instead there is nothing. No, it's that that is a classic example of that kind of um, it's it's the it's the iconic Street Fighter move is the Hadouken, and then he kind of somehow propels a fireball out of his clenched palms. Um, but as as silly and overtop as the film is, they have not successfully established that this is a world where men can shoot fire out of their hands. So they can't do the Hadouken, but they can kind of make him do a thing that looks like it and hope the fans go, oh, there it was. Okay, that's fine. It's like in the, um, the 1998 Godzilla film, where you could tell they were... Um, they weren't sure if they wanted Godzilla to breathe atomic fire. So they kind of have a scene where he kind of opens his mouth and sort of belches a bit and there's a fire, but you're not, you can't tell if the fire's coming out of his mouth or whether it's just something burning in front of him. Or, uh, But it kind of gives them that wiggle room where if people go, that's ridiculous, they can go, oh, he's not actually breathing fire. He's not actually doing a Hadouken with a fireball. Uh, but it, 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 it looks like the thing that the fans were wanting. So they're kind of trying to have it both ways, I think. Mm. It does. It, it's kind of falling between two stools there, and then and, and winding up. In so the many of the characters have these like sort of famous, iconic moves from the game, and while by the end of the film they've they've kind of got the look of the characters pretty spot on, I think. Would you say it's well cast? I guess, yeah. I mean, certainly in terms of of how the characters look, you know, if you if you showed the characters from the end of the film to you know, a fan of the game, they will be able to say, okay, yeah, that's that character and that's that character. Um, but like I was saying before, because Benny the Jet, A, only teaches one kind of martial arts, I believe, and did not have time to teach them anything anyway, none of the the characters actually fight. And when they do fight, it's only briefly because they can't do it. Um, so things like, um, you know, the kind of weird breakdancing, spinning kicks, um, I think Zang- Zangief, one of his favorite famous moves is he kind of picks somebody up upside down and then sort of jumps in the air, does a kind of wrestling head slam move, things like that. Um, in a in a film that had been better planned and more convincingly kind of cast and trained for, those are the kind of you know show stopping trailer moments that you would have got, where you'd have these characters doing these incredibly athletic, over the top attacks. But as it is, you, you're lucky to sort of get them throwing two two or more punches in the same shot. Well, as the uh, as the whole base is fallen apart after um, Bison's defeated, not before he starts firing lightning out of his hands, like like the em- like the Emperor from Star Wars. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, does he, he does he overdose on the super soldier juice or something like that? I can't remember what it is, or he just gets thrown into it like He's he's thrown into a, a panel of electronics and, and dies, but his own suit is fitted with resuscitation equipment that brings him back to life and also gives him electricity powers. <laughs> you see, again, M. Bison gets to do the stuff that should have been consistent throughout the whole film, I think. If you'd, if you'd done that, if every character had had that level of, yeah, he shoots lightning, yeah, he, he's an electric green man, you know, he can shoot fireballs out of his fist or whatever. That would have been. You could you could have done this. I think you could do this now as a kind of heightened reality, with various of CGI enhanced power moves, and that, and something that wasn't taking itself too seriously, but seriously enough so that the threat felt legitimate. It's 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 really like it was made twenty years too early. I mean, that's the thing. I mean. 
the one of the things the Marvel films have done is they've shown that you can just throw wacky stuff at the audience, and as long as you don't wink too much about it and don't apologize for it, people will kind of go along with it. You know, like the character of the Vision in the Avengers movies. They don't explain him at all. He's just, he's like a robot guy with an AI brain and he can walk through walls and he's super strong and he shoots beams out of his forehead. And at no point do they stop and go, right, here's how he can do all these things. They just assume that you're going to go, okay, fair enough. He's a, he's a super robot guy. Uh, so I, I do think that if you, did a, if you did a Street Fighter movie now, you could literally have the characters doing the crazy stuff from the games and not have to keep apologizing or explaining it and this was a this was a thing that so many adaptations of games and comics and things they almost felt like they had to apologize for the source material or make it realistic or grounded or gritty or whatever nonsense word you want to use whereas i think audiences have always just enjoyed the silly stuff as long as you're not doing it in a kind of sarcastic way as long as you're just going yeah that's fun that looks cool. Let's do that. And that's that kind of cuts to why I enjoy the film so much, because it, it has this kind of happy-go-lucky, fun tone that it's it's not taking itself that seriously. And it that that kind of that kind of cheeriness and that unapologetic nature for for having that kind of style. It, it has a kind of nineteen eighties animated series feel to it. Where yeah. there's a kind of like the, it's just yeah, this is happening because. Um, let's get, let's go. Let's have an adventure. Yeah, you know, we need to get the thing out of the place. Let's go in our super tank boat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can almost picture the Street Fighter stealth boat playset. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. I agree that it, it has that. I don't think it hits that tone consistently enough. I think too much of the film is just kind of a bit generic and bland and cheap. So that the moments when it does hit those kind of bizarre heights, usually involving Raul Julia's character, they kind of stand out so much more because you know that in a few minutes' time you're going to be back to boring Chun-Li or boring Ken and Ryu or Guile sitting at home in his Allied Nations dingy office <laughs> wondering, at what, <laughs> wondering at what point he's actually going to get in his boat and go and do something about the bad guy. Um, which is it's one of those films where the good guys and the bad guys both know exactly where each other is for the whole running time. But it's almost like they're waiting for permission from the script to actually go and do something about it. Yeah, they have they have to wait until the uh, the countdown is getting cl- is getting low enough for it to be exciting. Yeah, that's why Simon Callow is in it because he comes along and says, you know, oh, you mustn't go and fight N. Bison, which gives Jean Claude Van Damme the excuse to go. Well, I am because I. I'm a loose cannon who doesn't do things by the rules. Of course, if he was a loose cannon who doesn't do things by the rules, he would have done this half an hour ago. But... Also, he would never have made it to Colonel. <laughs> I, I do wonder about the about the uh, disciplinary uh, processes of the Allied Nations. It, it seems a bit slapdash in that respect. Um, but yeah, I, I think yeah. maybe if maybe if M. Bison's location was a mystery, if we didn't know where he was building his base or something, that would give it a bit more a bit more structure and a bit more reason to have all these characters running around. But as it is, they know where he is. There's just They just make a huge deal about getting there. Well, the uh, the end of the movie, we get the end of various uh, characters. Uh, Zangief finally realises that he's a bad guy. Um, DJ and Sagat make a run for it with um, a, a crate of treasure, which turns out to be a 
bison dollars, which are all completely worth. Need another wah, wah, wah for that bit, yeah. And um, Guile <laughs> arranges an interview with Chun Li, and says, "Sir, how about an interview? But only if you wear that dress." Which is it's it is McBain from The Simpsons. How how about another meeting in bed? Yeah, I mean that that's it's, it's so weird because there's been literally no kind of set up for that at all. If anything, poor Carly Minogue's been following around making goo goo eyes the whole movie, uh, and then he just he's just completely oblivious to that. But no, he he's decided Chun Li's the one based on almost no interaction as well. Or when he did, he, he seems to hate her because she keeps asking yeah. questions in a kind of Trump-esque, peevish manner. Well, that's probably one of those torn-out pages had uh, them, them going on a date or something. Yeah, I think I think they were kind of going for that kind of screwball comedy kind of, uh, you know, um, back-and-forth, battle-of-the-sexes kind of banter, but it doesn't really work because Van Damme isn't charming enough to pull it off, so he just kind of just generally comes across as a bit of an arsehole. Oh, oh uh, if, if nothing else, Jean-Claude Van Damme is, is this century's Cary Grant. <laughs> His his famous uh, famous romantic charisma, yes. Yeah, he's you know got, he's got the weird accent. Yeah, I mean you know to be fair, he's he's, he's no Steven Seagal in that department. But, uh, yeah, none none of the none of the eighties acting guys really ever mastered the art of being romantic action heroes. They were just too burly and angry and kicky to convince. I mean um, Schwarzenegger in Raw Deal, where he has to pretend to seduce this like gangsters mall and it's just one of the most embarrassing things ever committed to to screen it's it's like watching a, a wardrobe trying to seduce somebody <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's it's yeah so none of them really ever pulled that off but uh, it was that that was that it was a time when you could just go look he's the main guy she's the main girl obviously they're going to get together doesn't matter if you've done the legwork to get them to that point. It's the final shot, so they're going to flirt and maybe kiss. Um, you, you, you know, that is just how it works. Stop expecting it to make sense. Have you seen the film JCVD? Yes, yes. Is that not a remarkable piece of work? <laughs> it's fantastic, and it, it. I mean, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I, I'm a Van Damme fan. A fan Damme. Um, but I've certainly enjoyed a lot of his movies, and I thought JCVD was incredible. Um, it's it's a shame that immediately after making that, he went back to making terrible straight-to-video movies in Bulgaria. But um, Although he did make um, John claude Van Johnson. Have you seen that? I haven't, no. I've heard good things about it. Yeah, him. so he's, he's kind of... Periodically, he has this moments of brilliance where he kind of pokes fun at that persona. And when he does that, he's really good at it. There's also the um, the sponsorship bumpers he does for Channel Four Comedy, where he's just da- he's just dancing around in an ice bar, and just seems perfectly happy, messing around, looking silly, but with a very serious expression. Yeah, I think I think quite a few of the guys from that sort of era have tried to turn their the sort of try, try to reinvent themselves ironically. Um, you know, Hasselhoff is the classic example of that guy who's kind of yeah. trying to go, I was in on the joke all along, you guys. Let's all laugh at me, crazy Knight Rider guy. Um, 
but you also but, kind of you also suspect that there's a sort of Alan Partridge esque element to it, and that if someone went, no, actually, Mr. Hasselhoff, I think you're one of the greatest actors of your generation, he'd, he'd break down in tears and go, "Thank you, you're right. I knew that all along. It's killing me having to pretend to be knowingly terrible." Um, but I, I, I think with Van Damme, he he does genuinely seem to have realised that this is a silly way to earn a living. Yeah, I think maybe being having the martial arts background kind of helps with that because he's not under any illusions that he was hired for his early films because he was a great actor. He's hired because he can do the splits and kick people in the face. Um, so mm. I, I guess you'd have to be incredibly deluded, <coughs> Steven Seagal, to actually think you're good at this stuff um, if, if that was your route into, into celebrityhood. Well, I think in uh, Van Damme's case, at least, um, it's not too late for him to uh, win his Oscar. I mean, I I would have given him one for JCVD. I think that was... So would I. I think it was a genuinely brave and uh, vulnerable piece of work. It's, you know, it's 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 kind of amazing. Um, but like I say, it's kind of... He, he has that Stallone effect where Stallone will do something that... Um, like he did Rocky Balboa, which was, you know really good and then he followed it up with another Rambo movie um, he'll he'll make a, a really acclaimed drama and then he'll immediately go out and make a piece of trash um, and it's like well no you you were doing so well and now you've you've gone back into the you know making a a DTV movie called you know hard punching or something in Bulgaria um, so I mean yeah well, dude, dude's got to eat I guess and probably yeah. pay, pay the IRS or whatever Whatever uh, terrible financial troubles he was left in after his uh... most recent divorce. Okay, should we call it quits there? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think Street Fighter is it's certainly not the worst video game movie ever made. I think it's it's a strange kind of action movie which came out at a strange time for action movies. Um, you know, this was the the era of speed and things like that was starting to come through and you're starting to see this shift away from the muscle man as the default action hero. Um, and, you know, within five years you were having the Matrix and this whole shift towards the more... It was no longer about guys with big muscles just blundering through stuff like a bulldozer. There was more uh, more Asian influence in terms of the sort of John Woo-style action. So I think I think this kind of falls into a strange time period for Hollywood blockbusters. Um, it's it's pretty accurate as an adaptation if you ignore most of the first two acts, but it, it, there's a clear attempt to actually make a game that res- a movie that resembled the game, um, and to do right by most of the characters. They've not, you know, the film bends itself into weird shapes trying to accommodate everybody, but they are trying to accommodate everybody. They're trying to do the best they can with what they've got. Um, it's I, I wish it was sillier all the way through. Um, I wish they'd really gone for it with all the characters and just let them be as crazy and colourful as they are in the games rather than dressing them as real people for most of the time. Um, and I wish they had money to cast better people other than Raoul Julia and Jean-Claude Van Damme in major roles. But it's uh, it's it's not a movie that I regret revisiting because... There really isn't anything else like it, I don't think. It's it's a pretty unique piece of work. Well, I think that 
there's a line in Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas that would describe it rather well, in that it's too strange to live, but too mean to die. <laughs> yeah, like I say, in another world, maybe Street Fighter became, you know, a cinema franchise, and, you know, we had John Woo directing Street Fighter 2, the movie. Um and, you know, who knows where that would have gone. But um, it was one of those weird, sort of well-intentioned but poorly constructed, commercially successful, but for whatever reason. I mean, a, a movie that made that much. It cost $33 million to make, and it made $105 million in the US alone. Um, and there is no way a movie with that kind of profitability today would not have already spawned like twelve sequels and spin-offs with all the separate characters. Um, so the fact that it's just it's just still a movie that is on its own is is kind of worth celebrating in a weird way, I guess. Thanks to Dan for making the time for this recording. He's currently writing three comic series: Surreal Horror Hex Loader, Gothic Western Frankenstein Texas, and gaming superhero Ella Upgraded and you can find them all at gumroad.com slash zebracomics. Cinema Limbo is now on iTunes with more than 50 episodes available, so please download, review, and subscribe. We're also on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnos is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help with our running costs. I'm also participating in the Alzheimer's Society Memory Walk in October, so please head over to the Just Giving page at www.justgiving.com slash fundraising slash mw308839 to sponsor me. Thank you very much indeed. However, until next time, fight! You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Thank you.